You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. On The Feed, even if you're just a casual NFL fan, you know that the Buffalo Bills have clinched a playoff spot. So what's next for the team that's just across the border? Jim Lang has the game plan coming up. Also on the show, a new survey about saving for retirement and ooh, what happens if the funds run out. But we begin with the official start of winter this weekend, Afuaba, with a long-range forecast from Environment Canada. As we say goodbye to fall and hello to winter, we are now joined by senior climatologist with Environment Canada, Dave Phillips, who is going to let us know what winter has in store for Canadians. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me aboard. And you're right. I mean, it's been really a mixed uh, messages out there as to whether this will be the, the ice age cometh of the overheated planet in terms of the of the winter. Um, and, uh, and, and so we'll just have to wait and see how it how it unfolds. Already we have seen Afwa, I think, uh, uh, December that has actually been uh, uh, milder than normal. We've had a couple of, of cold uh, bouts, but uh, uh, but clearly the temperatures have been on average a bit uh, warmer than, than normal. So I think the first month of winter, we often describe December as being the first month of winter, um, I think conditions have certainly been uh, uh, warmer than they were at this time last year. We've had a little bit more snow than we normally would get, but uh, certainly I think most people are saying if this is all that winter can throw at us, uh, hey, we'll take it in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah, I'm one of them. (laughs) I definitely will take it in a heartbeat. Um, Okay, so before we get into the more of the details regarding winter, can we just take a quick look uh, back at fall? Uh, Was it generally what we expected it to be or was it a bit colder than usual? Well, I think it was about what we expected. I mean, I, certainly September and October were, um, were were milder than normal, and certainly October was much milder than it was last year. You know, last year, the it, it really cool weather just began in October, November, and December was kind of lukewarm, and then we went back into some cold weather. So, you know, I mean, we, we, we certainly started early last year. This year, I mean, we had a, a – I, I think for most people, they, fall is never long enough uh, – and, and certainly we had um, a warmer September, warmer October. We, in fact, we had a, even a day in October where the temperature got above 30 degrees. It was on the first day, but, but still, to get that as so late into, uh, into the year is, is somewhat uh, unusual. And then the, I think nature was trying to make up for us in November. It turned out to be, to be almost um, a three degrees cooler than normal and a lot more snow. So I lot of think people were sort of into the mood that, uh-oh, winter is coming it's going to start in november get our snow tires on put away the lawn furniture it was it was pretty uh, pretty difficult we had temperatures that really swung quite dramatically in november from 12 degrees to to minus 14 degrees in uh, in markham and unionville and then york region generally so uh, now december has kind of been a back and forth a little bit as i said we've been a little bit milder than normal the, the amount of snow is continued and it's sort of interesting off whether sometimes when it's a little milder than normal, you get a little bit more snow because sometimes that uh, it encourages some um, some storms that come up from the United States and they tend to have a little bit of, of of snow rather than rain. So we've had a mixed bag, but but generally more snow than last year. But hey, nothing stays because we've had a, a milder than normal condition. For example, in December so far, we're only not through all of it. We've had a temperature that was colder in November than in December, and um, and on average it's been a little bit uh, warmer than normal. So uh, I think overall the fall was kind of typical. It turned out to be a little milder than normal because two of the three months were that way. But um, it's far, it's behind us now and it's winter that we're now focused on, of course. Okay, so then uh, with that in mind and looking ahead, we have been hearing both sides that it might be colder than usual and warmer than usual. Um, Let's just uh, find out right now uh, for once and for all, how is winter looking like? 
Well, now, it's, of course, it's according to Environment Canada. I mean, we do have, as you mentioned, we have uh, different forecasts out there or outlooks in terms of the, um, the winter. And my gosh, in the early days, that was almost the end of summer. The Farmers Almanac got their forecast out, uh, the Weather Network, the AccuWeather. So some of the early forecasts were talking about this being the winter from hell. I mean, uh, not, not in a hot way, but, hey, really in a miserable kind of way, just too much winter and uh, too long and too, uh, uh, too cold, too much polar vortex and all that kind of thing. So I think a lot of people were feeling that, gee, you know, this is unfair because we had kind of a coolish spring, uh, a kind of a teaser but not a pleaser uh, in terms of the summer. And so, um, so I think that most people were feeling kind of cheated in a way. And even the warmer than normal September, October didn't cut it in terms of making up. But, you know, a model that came after in sort of in the beginning of the end of November, the beginning of December, and we define, we don't wait until the 21st or 22nd of December. I mean, that astronomically is the beginning of, uh, of winter, but we really look at it for the whole month of December. We, we really define, Environment Canada defines summer, a uh, winter as December, January, February. So almost after well, we've got one month kind of in the bag. You certainly know the character and the personality of, um, of December. So our models, which we issued our, our summer forecast, and we've updated it since then. I'm sorry, our winter forecast, we've updated it. We were actually saying it was going to be milder than normal. So unlike the previous ones I mentioned, we were going more to the milder than normal. And it wasn't because of La El Nino. It wasn't because of polar vortex missing in action. It was just that we felt there'd be more of a southerly flow, a westerly flow, more American air coming into, into our area. And I really think that what we'll see, and I think that December has given you a little bit of a, of a dress rehearsal to that, it's this kind of variability, this up and down, the yo-yo kind of weather. And, and I think that um, uh, this this week, uh, full week before Christmas, is sort of like that. We've, uh, we'll have uh, some very cold temperatures with sunshine, and then we'll go back into melting temperatures. So I think that up and down, back and forth. And after, you know, if I was ordering weather, it would be the kind of weather I would like for the winter time because it often goes faster. I think some of the, the things about winter that makes it the most miserable season is that we just get locked into a situation that goes on for day after day, week after week, and month after month with just too much winter light. And I think if we get a break where you get some melting, thawing going on, and you're back in the deep freeze, but it's only for, you know, three or four days, and you're back into the melting, I really think it makes winter sort of almost skip along quick, quack, fast. And almost, my gosh, within a week, we'll have the, the shortest day will be over, and we'll be beginning to add every uh, day length. We'll be getting a little longer. And then, my gosh, maybe if we... Uh, uh, close our eyes and open them, we'll be into February and into March, and then spring will be uh, soon to arrive. So my senses are, we think, still milder than normal. I think we backed off a little bit of that, uh, looking at the recent models, Afwa, and we're talking about near normal. And you know, Afwa, if I was ordering weather, if I was manufacturing weather for the good people in York Region, I'd always order normal weather. You know, it's uh, some people like winter, they ice fish and ski and snowmobile. Others like go walking for a, a, a nice walk in the woods of uh, in York region. Others would rather miss that season. So my sense is that there's going to be something for everybody this particular winter. And I think I can I, I think I can be okay with that only because I'm I will be I'll be honest about it. I prefer the milder than usual weather. Well, However, yeah. I always think in mind about uh, those who um, are, drive snow plows or whatnot. This is where their bread and butter is. So we have to think about them too. Well, absolutely. Some people make money off of the, uh, the misery of weather that we curse. Others bless it. Others curse it. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think most people feel like you do. I mean, they would rather we live in the, the second coldest country in the world, the snowiest country in the world. But hey, I mean, we like to, to, tease people about it, but I don't think we like to experience it. I always think we're happier when we cheat winter. When we get in an El Nino, it's balmier than normal and we're we're seeing fewer fewer cold days and, and less uh, more rain than snow. I mean, all those things play to our advantage, but hey, after all, this is Canada. 
um, it's winter who we are known as the winter people and the uh, the great white north so I guess we, we get it honestly and I think this year I don't think it will be as long as last year and I think that's the other message I think that last year we just seemed to get winter went on started early went later spring was just measured in days rather than months I think what we're going to see is when we come to the astronomical beginning of spring in March I think we'll have had some some mild days and some shed that parka and that uh, uh, and think about taking snow tires off and then just hope for a, a wonderful spring and uh, and summer. Okay, I will take that in stride then. And uh, Dave, I have to ask for the kids and you know what, even for the adults too, uh, how is Christmas looking? Is it going to be a white Christmas or is it going to be a green one? Well, it is always a tough call. We had a, 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 a in the Toronto area, including uh, Richmond Hill and York Region. Uh, we haven't had too many in the last few years. I think in ten years we've had three uh, three white ones and seven green ones, and so that's well below the average. So I guess we're due for one. But right now, you know, it's not looking good. I think we're going to be. Uh, it's going to be a touch and go. I think it's uh, it, it would be almost a flip of a coin. We're going to see some. Um, some not really balmy, balmy temperatures. We're going to see temperatures above the uh, freezing mark, which could bring rain, but we're also going to see temperatures below the freezing mark, which would be cold. And the definition of a white Christmas is two centimeters on Christmas morning. So my sense is right now we don't have uh, one, and we, we may get a few dustings of snow here and there, but my sense is not a really a slam dunk. It's not as obvious this year as it uh, sometimes can be. Right now we don't have it, and we can assault any snow that we do get from now until, um, until, until say, uh, uh, Christmas Eve, and then it all will depend upon uh, what we see on the on the 23rd, the 24th. And my sense is that you're going to have to, uh, you know, have to going to have to sort of dream a little harder for a white Christmas this year. It just doesn't seem to be any weather systems that are going to give us that glorious white Christmas. Maybe people like yourself, Afwa, who probably I know you don't like winter. You're not a big fan of it, uh, but maybe you even like snow on, on Christmas Day. It puts everybody in a good frame of mind. Forget your debts, your relationships, and hey, it's like tinsel and to- turkey and toys at Christmas time. Uh, even people who hate that four-letter word snow uh, like it at Christmas time, but I'm not so sure that nature's going to deliver for this year. I would say that I would bet a couple of loonies on the fact that it'll be another green Christmas. All right then. Okay, I guess, uh, you know what, I am a fan of that white Christmas feel and maybe maybe i might have to just drive up north a little bit just to uh experience that um and then just have that traditional white christmas but hey again um take everything in stride uh, you can always make a lemonade out of, out of lemons in any situation well, that's right. And, you know, good people in York Region have a little better chance of having a white Christmas than our, our, our neighbors to the south in Toronto. So, hey, maybe north of the 401, uh, we, will, uh, we will have a, a little bit of uh, a skiff of snow here and there that would qualify for a white Christmas. But down in the urban heat island of Toronto, they're just going to have to drive further north to York Region or up to uh, Simcoe County uh, and up to where the lake effect snows blow hard uh, and uh, and they can enjoy a white Christmas there. All right. We'll just have to continue to keep our eyes on the sky. Dave, it's been such a pleasure uh, talking to you about the, the season throughout 2019. All the best throughout the rest of the year. And, of course, we will chat again. Well, thank you, Afwa. So enjoyed it. Let's uh, do it again. And uh, all the best to you and your, um, your wonderful listeners for, uh, for a happy holiday. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. So we're heading into week 16 of the NFL season, and some teams, including the Buffalo Bills, have already clinched a playoff spot. Over now to Jim Lang with a look ahead to the exciting weeks of games coming up. As the year comes to a close, so does the regular season of the National Football League, and no one I'd like more talk to talk more about the National Football League than the Toronto Sun senior NFL writer in the pride of Newmarket, a longtime York Region resident, John Crick, joining us in the feed today. John, how are you? I'm doing great. You know, it's winter, but what the heck? We know what's coming up the next four months. More of this. Yeah. Now, it's funny you bring up the weather in winter because I find there's a bit of a trend in the NFL. There's a lot of teams all of a sudden in this new age football that seem like they're built for this cold weather and nasty weather conditions, and not the least of which are the Bills, but especially John Harbaugh's Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, they're... uh 
They are the best team right now in the NFL, and they're on a 10 or 11 game win streak. I forgot what it's up to now. And they are, they haven't lost in September, and they really have only had a couple of close games in that whole stretch. They run the ball more than any team in the modern era. In fact, they are just 300 and some odd rushing yards with two games to go, and they're averaging 204 rushing yards a game. They could set the all-time NFL record for most rushing yards in a single season. In this day and age of high scoring and high passing, they're kind of a throwback team with a, with a good defense, too. You have a, a, a huge in-depth knowledge of football going back to your days covering Michigan football, the NCAA, and the National Football League. And, and you mentioned trends, John. And Defensively, mm-hmm. teams are built to stop the pass. And I wonder how you stop the Ravens running game. We have so many teams that are loaded up in defensive backs and light linebackers. Well, that's a good point, Jim. It really is because you need to have a good, stout front seven on your defense to stop the run. I mean, no matter what type of offensive style you run to gain all those yards on the ground, you got to have a, a really good front seven. And the probably the most impressive thing, Jim, about these Ravens and the way they can run the ball, and it all starts with their quarterback, Lamar Jackson, the second-year uh, runner who has proved to be a much better thrower than any of us ever thought he could be. I mean, I saw him throw twice in, in the last two years at training camp, and I honestly, in, in eight years of doing this, I've never seen a quarterback, even a backup, look as bad as he has in both of those stops. But he somehow got it together and, and is able to throw it well. But to gain yards the way they have against some of the greatest defensive minds in the history of the NFL, you think about it, they blew out Bill Belichick, who was – famous for figuring out how to stop anybody. Look at the Super Bowl last year. They held the Rams, the highest-scoring team in the league last year, to three points to win the Super Bowl. And then Pete Carroll. All these teams, one after another, Pittsburgh, that are known for their defenses and their stout, tough-minded run defenses, even in this winter time of the year, and they're powerless to stop this team. Right now, it's, you know, if you've got money and you haven't bet yet on the Super Bowl and you have a chance to do it, <laughs> I'd put it on them because uh, just on the odds alone, they look like nobody's figured out how to stop them yet. Uh, talking to Toronto Sun senior NFL writer and longtime York Region resident John Crick, and you'd mentioned Lamar Jackson and the Buffalo Bills are led by Josh Allen. They're similar in that they're both young, talented quarterbacks. But I've always been impressed, especially this year, that there's a certain humility about them that's genuine. It's team first. It's fans first. And they, they're confident, but there's no arrogance about either one of them. Yeah, you know what? Um, Josh Allen, and he's not the first. Let's be honest. He's not the first Buffalo Bills quarterback this century during these awful drought where they went 17 years before <laughs> two years ago without even making the playoffs. Um, and this year is their first 10-win season since 1999, since Doug Flutie was there, 20 years. It's a long-suffering fan base, and it's a team that hasn't figured it out, changing coaches and GMs every two, three, four years. But this team, as you, as you say, Josh Allen, second-year fireball passer. This guy can throw the ball like few people can, but it's just been a bit scattershot. You know, I, a term I use is like a cannon on a merry-go-round. <laughs> Sometimes you don't know where it's going to go, but with him, he's starting to figure it out. And I, I asked, after they lost at home in week four, the Bills, to uh, New England at home, it was a close game. Neither team could do much offensively because it's two of the best defenses in the league. And I asked Sean McDermott at the post-game news conference, I said, does Josh Allen not know where that line is between making that gargantuan gaff or two or three every game as he had been doing in, his, uh, in every game as a rookie and early this season? And he kind of you know, just uh, brushed off the question. But I think the answer was that, no, even the coaches didn't trust him to know where that line was. Somehow in October he figured it out because since then he's been one of the best, uh, most exciting players in the league offensively, not just as a quarterback but in any position. He's throwing properly. He's not making those gaffes every game where you just – close. you just almost want to close your eyes if you're a Bills fan and go, what was he doing? What was he thinking? He's got over that. Now, whether that's temporary or just a fluke, we don't know because there's always a few game stretches and even a bad quarterback's career where he might look good. But the, but it's all trending in the right direction for the Bills, and uh, this is the best time and the most promising time to be a Bills fan since the Super Bowl years of the early 90s. And, John, I, there's something about this team that does feel different, that feels legit. And I, I've been at a few functions mm-hmm. lately where I've been hearing men and women of different age groups get excited about the Bills, talk about the Bills Mafia, mm-hmm. going to games. 
I see the fan response when they land at two thirty in the morning at their home airport. I, I, it, it, no matter, even if they go on the road, I don't know if visiting fans realize what's about to hit them when the Bills Mafia shows up to support this team. Yeah, they are a devout fan base, and as we talked about, a long suffering. And yeah, the nickname is the Bills Mafia, and they do show up at airports at two in the morning <laughs> or on the road, even if it's a West Coast game. And I'm sure there's a lot of NFL teams. I know there are a lot of NFL teams that can say the same. But there's something about the Bills fan base, which you know, as you've mentioned, my you know, growing up in Windsor and being a big Michigan fan and following that team both as a fan and as a historian for for decades now, um, there is something about the Bills. Fanhood that some like the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the CFL. It's it's more of a U.S. college style fan base and um, devotion than we see typically in most NFL or most CFL cities, where it's you know it's the pro team and and you know they're competing for the pro dollar. But the Bills are like the big thing. Yes, there's the Sabers there, and of course the place would go crazy if they ever won a cup. We know that, but there's something about the Bills in an, in an American city where the NFL team winning it all would always be the ultimate. You know, growing up near the Detroit Lions, you know, if they even won more than one playoff game <laughs> since the 1950s, which is a true fact, I mean, th- that market would go crazy if they ever won a, a Super Bowl. And I think the same is true in Buffalo, as we know. Um, it, is a, it is admirable to see how those fans follow that team and they have paid their dues, especially since those Super Bowl years. So anything that uh, good that happens to them, uh, you, you have to be a, a Patriots or Jets or Dolphins fan. Those are their division rivals or just somebody who's a little bit cold-hearted if you don't feel good for those folks right there. John, we haven't mentioned the Patriots, and it, it, it wasn't by design. It's just they're not the same Patriots I, I see when I watch them. Tom Brady definitely isn't the same. He didn't make the Pro Bowl, and he didn't deserve to be in the Pro Bowl. And you know, Bill Belichick is right. as good of a coach as he is, a great coach. He, but he's going to have to pull a real rabbit out of his hat to do go deep in the postseason the way I see the team playing. Yeah, most years, if you go back through Brady's history and the Patriots' history this century, and of course they've won six Super Bowls, they've been to nine Super Bowls, which is insane. There's only been 20 seasons so far, or 18, I guess, in the books. He's been something else. But when he has these down years statistically, and, you know, there's always so many myriad reasons. Even the Patriots probably couldn't apportion a pie graph and, and, and give you the exact reasons for everything. I think it starts with them with their offensive line. They're, they missed two key performers from last year where they had a very good offensive line by that Super Bowl, and two of them are gone this year. Their center is, uh, had a, has a disease that he's, he's been, or a back injury, something, I forget what it is. It's very, he, he hasn't played at all this year, and they lost, lost their left tackle to free agency. I believe it starts there. You lose 40% of a great offensive line, and they have not been able to replace them with players anywhere near as good. Uh, and I believe it's there because the key, the key there is that they were a good rushing team last year, and this year they're not. They're way down. They're a top seven or eight rushing team last year. This year they're in the 20s, one of the, one of the below, well below hmm. average in the league. So you look at that, and they can't protect Brady as well. If anyone who's watched a single Patriots game this year on TV knows that Brady, when he's under pressure, he doesn't want to take a sack. He throws the ball on the ground. He seems to do it two or three times a quarter almost in some games. He is not the same. His completion percentage, Jim, is 60%. He has never hmm. in his 20 years in the league had one that low. And he's only thrown 21 touchdowns. To give you some perspective on that, three years ago when he was the MVP and he missed the first game for that Deflategate suspension, he only played 12. So he missed a quarter of the season. And that season, he had 28 touchdowns. This year, he's played in every game and only has 21. On the NFC, I really can't figure out who is going to emerge there. I, I, I look some days at New Orleans and say, no one's going to beat them. But I say, say the same thing, San Francisco. Who's going to beat them? What about Green Bay? I, it, I can't figure out who's going to emerge from the NFC this year, John. Yeah, I mean, you've got Green Bay 11 and 3. You've got Minnesota 10 and 4. Oh, and yeah. Two teams play this coming in the Monday night and in the last Monday night game. It could be Minnesota even that emerges over the teams you just mentioned, San Francisco and Seattle. Uh, and of course, New Orleans. New Orleans, I thought up until Monday night, I mean, they played a very deficient uh, Indianapolis Colts team that's really banged up and, and, and just uh, on the way down this year. There will be a better team next year. But my point is that going into that game, I'd written and been saying for a couple of weeks that, you know what, this New Orleans team, we're all kind of thinking that they are last year's team when they were just an absolutely ferocious juggernaut, both on offense and defense, and they really haven't shown that this year. 
Now, they, yes, they blew out uh, the Colts the other night and looked really good. But my point is, I don't think, I mean, they lost at home to San Francisco giving up insane, whatever, 46 points, yeah. was it 48 points? Um, they aren't the same team as last year. So to me, and I were my team to go to the Super Bowl against the Chiefs, that's what I predicted in August. So I look at it as any of those five teams could emerge, and I don't think anybody will really know until these games are played. It could be that close. It could be between five of these six. These are five of the six NFC teams that will make the playoffs, and any one of them could end up in the Super Bowl and be a worthy, uh, a worthy uh, player in that game. John, knowing how much mileage you put on your vehicle driving from York Region to <laughs> Orchard Park and all points beyond uh, safe travels over the holidays into the new year and the NFL playoffs, and uh, and just be safe with that Bills Mafia. Thanks for joining us. I uh, enjoyed coming on anytime. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, John. Next on the feed, a couple of stories to help you manage your money. The survey is called Counting Pennies, the Frugal Facts of Retirement, and this is a survey conducted by Sun Life. Jacques Goulet is the president of Sun Life Canada, and he joins me on the feed. Thank you for spending time with us on the feed. Let's talk about some of the startling statistics that have come out. Uh, this one really, I find quite upsetting. 47% of working Canadians believe there is a serious risk they could outlive their retirement savings. Jacques. Yeah, and it is, uh, we can call it upsetting, as you said, or, or uh, you know, frustrating, but there's unfortunately a high number of Canadians that uh, feel they will outlive their retirement savings and and, you know, I see that as a call to action. You know, people uh, should try to address that um, because, you know, what happens uh, is people tend to underestimate, you know, that they might live a long time and how much money you need to live uh, comfortably for a long time. So you're right. It is uh, it's an upsetting statistic. Well, the cost of living continues to increase, and we are living longer uh, thanks to uh, scientific breakthroughs and better medical technology and treatment. Forty-four percent of working Canadians expect to be employed full-time at the age of just over 66. Does that surprise you? No. I mean, for those of us in the industry, you know, those are statistics that unfortunately don't surprise us. Having said that, you know, we would very much want people to take action and do something about it. And our view, Anne, is that it starts with advice, and I would say great advice. The reality is that it's not easy to plan for retirement. There are so many variables. You've mentioned inflation as one, uh, investment returns, how the markets perform, how long you're going to live, of course. It could be you know, having to deal with an unforeseen illness, and, um, you know, so it's not easy, and Canadians should realize that it's okay to get help, find a very good advisor, an advisor that you can trust, that will take the time to listen, understand your needs, and develop a plan for yourself and, and for your family. The real estate market has been quite strong uh, in the past decade, 15 years or so. Are some people basing their retirement strategy on the value of their real estate holdings? Yeah, some of them might do that, but I would say, and it's another variable of, you know, it's hard to predict how things might go. And, uh, you know, as I said, there are so many variables that, you know, the best place to start is to get a proper financial plan that becomes, you know, a little bit like a compass in terms of, you know, moving forward. And, and people should start early, obviously. And we talk about planning for retirement, but you know there are many other things that people plan for in life. Somebody might aspire to take a sabbatical to spend time with family, or it might be that somebody wants to make a career change and uh, you know needs to retrain for a number of months. So how do we help people plan for these life events? And of course, retirement is a big one. Let me ask you about companies. Uh, are they uh, obliged or interested in supporting their employees as they uh, march through their career life, you know, from beginning to middle to end, if they are the type who stays in that particular company for a length of time? Yeah, I mean, companies obviously have a role to play, uh, both in terms of 
helping their employees through education, making them aware of the programs that they offer, and making sure that, that their employees take advantage of these programs. One of the statistics that came out of our survey is that uh, we have estimated that Canadians are leaving something like 3 to $4 billion on the table. And the way this occurs is that uh, they don't take full advantage of their employer plan. You know, you have situations where your employer will match either a portion or fully your own contribution. So take an example. You might put an extra dollar into your plan, and your employer puts an extra 50 cents. That's a phenomenal rate of return, given that you get that extra 50 cents at no cost. And we find that too many employees are not taking advantage of it, and that's where this 3 to $4 billion is coming from. So, yes, we think employers have a role to play. Let's go from one uh, end of the spectrum to the other. The young person in his or her 20s or 30s just uh, beginning the career and, and making great advances. How do you convince them that they need to think about planning for retirement? Yeah, that's that's a real tough one because for them and you know they view retirement as being so far down the road and something they can worry about later. In our view, I think we need to get them to develop that muscle, that discipline of starting to save and that's what as I said earlier, maybe it's it's saving for a great trip, maybe it's saving for a sabbatical. You know, because as they develop that that uh, discipline and that muscle, as I said, then they'll be able to do it and exercise it for other and bigger things like retirement. That's a very good description. Now let's go to the other end of this spectrum. One of the stats that has emerged from this survey, nearly a quarter of Canadian retirees describe their lifestyle as frugal. How, at this stage in their lives... How can they turn things around so that their lives are less stressful when it comes to the financial aspect of it? Yeah, so as you said, uh, that is a statistic that's quite unfortunate. Nearly a quarter uh, living or describing their lifestyle as frugal. Um, You know, what I would say is that, you know, of course, uh, they don't have the same opportunity as somebody who is 25 years old and maybe can uh, make the appropriate adjustments. But it's, it, it's nevertheless helpful to talk to a financial planner and to a financial advisor. We, we, we have people who sometimes um, realize that you know, they might have some strategies to make their savings last longer. And, and that level of anxiety that you're describing, talking to an expert who can help them uh, you know, devise the right strategies can reduce that level of anxiety. Of course, there are situations where you know, if, if somebody is genuinely too late, you know, it's, it's really tough to do something. Uh, I know that can happen, but, but there will be situations where talking to an expert, a financial planner, will help. Is there a cost associated with uh, dealing with a financial planner or advisor? And how do you go about finding one that is the right fit for your life? Yeah, that's such a, an important question. When you talk to people that have a good financial advisor, uh, what they will tell you is the most invaluable thing that they have with their advisors is this relationship of trust. You know, my advisor knows me, understands my need, understands my aspirations, uh, understands my family situation. And so it's important to do the proper diligence and to take the time even to interview more than one uh, we have a number of them, of course, at Sun Life. If people go to sunlife.com on our on our website, there is a uh, a feature there to help people find an advisor according to certain criteria. So it is very important to take the right amount of time and and, and find somebody that you feel comfortable with and that you feel will take the time to sit down with you and and develop a plan. Jacques Goulet, president of Sun Life Canada, thank you for taking the time to help us embrace our financial future here in the present on the feed. Thank you, Jacques. Thank you.
We continue our focus on the dollars and cents with advice to help our young people find the ideal part-time job. Amber Pay takes it from here. We always like to sort of give a voice to students and uh, help them out in whichever way we can. And some of that is to talk about part-time jobs. And if you're a student going to school, is it a good idea for a job? Not such a great idea to have a job. Parents, some of you, some of you really want your kids to get out there and work while others want you to stay home and study. So we've come to Dr. Natasha Sharma, who is a relationship and parenting expert. We kind of want to know what is the best thing should we be doing with this? How, how can a part-time job help a student? Well, I, a part-time job, it, well, it, I mean, the most obvious way is that a part-time job can provide income, and a student is usually paying money for school. <laughs> so, you know, obviously the most functional reason um, would be to to be able to pay or subsidize, uh, you know, or, or fund um, part of your tuition costs without having to take on loans. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a delicate balance, right, because at what point does uh, a job hinder or interfere with your ability to acquire the knowledge and perform uh, on the program that you are investing that money into mm-hmm. and your time. So, yeah, I guess it's sort of a double-edged sword. With, but I imagine that the skills are really important for for a student trying to get ahead, and and some of those skills can be really intricate in in the field that they're going to be uh, working in. What kind of skills do these part-time jobs have to offer a student? Well, I'm not sure I know, uh, I mean, there's sort of general skills that working, period, no matter what you're doing, whether you're making coffee at a coffee house or whether you're, uh, you know, interning at a hospital, um, jobs or working uh, on a job will provide a certain number of skill sets or, or allow you to learn certain things that can be applicable almost anywhere such as how to manage time, how to build relationships with other people, how to manage conflict, how to work with team members, how to present ideas and uh, speak to people in authority and leaders and even take on leadership roles. So, and reliability, I, I imagine, too. And res- yeah, how to take accountability and responsibility for your actions. So, again, no matter what kind of part-time work you're doing, um, I think there's certainly skills to be gained. But I think the thing to keep in mind is you want to know why you're doing the part-time work as a student. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, obviously, the luxury would be when we're, especially if we're investing a lot of time and money into higher learning, that we could just focus on that one thing because it is something that we're dedicating precious time and resources to. But that's not always a reality. And sometimes people do need to, to work in order to pay, to, to earn money. Mm-hmm. And in other cases, they're actually taking on part-time work to build a skill set in the background that may help them upon graduation or to build connections mm-hmm. that they can then use to create jobs or find um, the kind of ideal work that they're looking for after they finish their education. Right. So these can all be very valuable. It's a matter, I think, of understanding why you're working part-time, mm-hmm. what are you hoping to get out of it, and does it help you with your future goals and right. not take away, you know, put too much on your plate for you? Well, certainly a resume builder, I would imagine, but it can bring a lot of stress as well. In between trying to study and go to school, uh, it, it sometimes isn't always a good thing. There's, there's, there's some cons here as well, are there not? Well, yeah, as I was mentioning, if, you know, no matter what your reasons are for taking on part-time work, I think if you're a student, I mean, depending on what you're studying, if you're doing continuing education and you're already, you know, a, a working adult, uh, but I think you're speaking more along the lines of people who are in college, university, they're doing their mm-hmm. undergrad, maybe they're doing graduate school. If you're undertaking that kind of uh, uh, kind of education, I think most of the time that's the priority. That's really the focus. And so any part-time work should really not do anything to hinder what you get out of that program. And if it does hinder it, even if it's something that's offering you the skill set. I mean, if it's the kind of part-time work that is going to provide you with the kind of connections or the kind of work that's just going to pave your way, okay, fine, Mm -hmm. you know, try and make it work. 
But I think if, if at any point you've just got too much on your plate, no matter whether you're a student or, um, you know, a, a seasoned expert in your field at 55, it doesn't matter where you are in life. When we have too much on our plate, we don't function well. Right. We get stressed and we can burn out. So if we're going to incorporate any kind of work as full-time students, um, you know, maybe maybe full-time student, maybe maybe come down to part-time student and then part-time work, right. or full-time student and part-time work so long as it doesn't completely stress you out because you don't have enough hands or hours of the day. Right. That's and, not a good situation. And I think in some cases, if, if somebody is going to school, it's almost the stress of completing that school within the, let's say, the traditional amount of time. For example, somebody who is in university is thinking, oh, I have to get that degree in four years because then I have to go and get my master's and then I have to go and get my doctorate as well. So if I look at it, so you're almost stressing yourself out rather than perhaps allowing yourself some time to say, you know what, there is no timeline that I must do this. And that I would imagine would be would be something else as well. So then I think about a summer job. When I was growing up, I had a job when I was in school, in, in high school. But when I went into university, I did summer work instead. So I think the benefits are, are there for both. But perhaps a summer job is better than one that's working through the year when you're trying to work. I mean, I think if you have the luxury and, you know, to be able to save work for summer, I think it's more ideal um, it allows you to sort of compartmentalize what you're doing. So, you know, the school year is for acquiring knowledge and exploring your subject matter and, and really, you know, soaking up wholly, uh, ideally the love of learning. But, uh, you know, summer, uh, a long stretch of summer of four months for college and university is a long time, and boredom can quickly set in, and boredom is poison, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of boredom, like lengthy boredom is poison, not right. boredom, just lengthy, ongoing boredom is poison. And so, you know, a summer job provides multiple benefits from that standpoint as well during the summer to uh, earn money, to gain skills, to manage time, to understand what it's like to work with people, but also to to be productive. So that's ideal. But again, I think, you know, sometimes people are um, taking jobs during the school year in order to pay for school. That's sometimes a reality as well. Right. And I imagine it must be hard to have a, a, a part-time job of any kind when you have some sort of school exam coming up as well. So maybe a better idea to just sort of put the job on hold while you have to do your exams and hopefully you have... If, uh, if you can, but I mean, in these days, school is getting... It's very expensive. I mean, when I went to college, uh, sorry, university, uh, it was quite affordable. Mm-hmm. And now, it, I mean, it's just completely changed even here in Canada. And I think, you know, the idea of taking on massive student debt is a widely known mm-hmm. Uh, and growing problems. So I think, you know, many people will be, uh, of course, in- incentivized to try and avoid taking on as much debt as they possibly can, especially younger people nowadays are more debt avoidant than, than previous generations. And that may lead them to consider alternatives like taking part-time work so as to not take out so much of a loan. Dr. Sharma has some information on where you can go to help the student in your household. So I've created a a website, actually, a business company that actually provides audio courses and online to actual tools that people can use to take into their own hands, sort of do it yourself, because not everyone has the ability to consult with a therapist or a professional expert or the money or the time and resources so this actually puts everything that I've been doing for the past decade as uh, in the field of psychology, puts it right into manageable do-it-yourself audio courses that distilled all of my sort of teaching, all the nuggets of wisdom into these audio courses and guided a guided journal that can actually help um, people who use them and take these courses uh, learn how to manage their emotions, how to manage time, how to manage... Um, their goals and really live uh, at their best, most sort of peak performance. And they can do that in a very accessible way because it's affordable and they can uh, do it anytime, anywhere. And the website is thekindnessjournal.com. Mm-hmm. That's where you would go for that, thekindnessjournal.com. And is this uh, a site that is good for students or parents or both? Or is it? Is both. It, it's for, okay. Both. I always say healthy parents um, equal healthy children. I mean, students are often older, but it's the, I would the the courses and the book is tailored towards anyone from age thirteen to fourteen plus. So 
basically high school students and beyond, anyone older, uh, up to the age of whenever, can benefit from the audio courses that are on the site, which literally are self-teaching courses on how to manage emotions, how to uh, master self-care, how to um, just use anger, how to manage time. And then our guided journal, which is the flagship product, the Kindness Journal, is actually a daily six-minute journal where you fill in prompted entries that help you create a more positive mindset, um, which can shift back to transformational over time. You just begin to behave uh, and see the world in a much more positive, optimistic way. And that has a profound influence on how we feel and then how we act and the and, outcomes in our life. Well, this so sounds like something that I could use, not even being a parent or a, or a student. <laughs> this sounds like I'm Amber and here I go. I can just write into this. And <laughs> it, it is. It's like a wellness journal. Is, is that fair? We have a, yeah, we have one guided wellness journal called the Kindness Journal, mm-hmm. and then we have a, so far two audio courses with a third being added this coming week. We have two uh, self-guided audio courses. You, or audio courses you literally just click, download, and there's also a guided relaxation available. Mm. So relaxation is something I've taught 99% of the clients that I see, and it's just a way to really deeply calm and then incorporate positive visual imagery and self-suggestions. It's just a really nice way to work at your subconscious level to create a more positive mindset and to encourage you to take more positive action. And these tools are, Amber, you're absolutely right, they're for anybody, not just parents, not just students, they're for anybody who wants to learn how they can take control over feeling better and living better. Mm-hmm. com, and on that note, we actually we have an anxiety course that will be coming out sometime in 2020 because, to your point, it is one of the leading, that anxiety and depression are two of the leading mental and emotional health problems in the world. But so far, uh, we have two, soon to be three courses there as well as our guided journal at thekindnessjournal.com. Dr. Natasha Sharma, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 105.9theregion.com for a replay. Well, cash used to be king, but according to the annual Canadian Payments Methods and Trends Report, it seems that electronic payments account for 73% of all transaction volume versus cash at just 21%. Cyril Charon, Head of Research and Strategic Foresight Payments Canada, joins us on the feed. Thank you, and why did you conduct this survey? Oh, well, thank you for having me. So the, the report is an annual report that Payments Canada produces each year looking at how Canadians pay. And actually what you were saying is what we see is that the habits of Canadians are changing. And they are changing because there is new innovations that are coming in the market and they are more confident using those innovations. So there are three key things that we saw that I think for me stands out is that first, as you said, Cash declined, and it's not necessarily king anymore, and it declined by 40% in the last five years. So it's quite significant. The other thing that you are mentioning is the use of electronic payments. So it is growing. We see almost three-quarters of all payments are made electronically. So here we're talking about uh, using your card or when you make a transfer. So there's technically everything that is not cash or checks. And the last thing we're seeing is contactless payments. So this is when you tap your card or your mobile phone at the shop when you pay. And this is also growing. It's grew by 30% since 2017. Cyril, how secure is this evolving technology? So this, this security is still the front foot of all those innovators. So Canadians want more convenience and choice. But security is always here, and it's very important. Um, at Payments Canada, we really, you know, understand that, and we are modernizing the Canada payment system to enable more choice and convenience for Canadians and how they pay without forgetting security at the heart of it. 
household debt is quite high in this country. Uh, how do you explain that and make Canadians feel comfortable using the various uh, ways, the new payment channels? You know, they may not realize that they're accumulating debt as they use this technology to make payments. Yes, so debt is another topic in itself where we can talk a lot about it. But technically, the payment systems that are, um, the number of payment systems that are increasing in the ecosystems are something that is not done um, lightly. You know, really people take security and education out of front source. Education is very important, educating the ecosystem, including the consumers, on what they use and how they use it. It's very important, and I believe in Canada, it's it's definitely here. There's a lot of um, innovation and implementation that are made in this space. And at a certain point, we must be and take responsibility for our finances. Uh, with all of these options, uh, how do you guide people so that they understand what it is they're doing, how they're paying these options, uh, and how not to find themselves in financial trouble? So this is something that this report is not looking at, and uh, it's looking at how people are conducting their transactions and how they it's evolving different uh, different years and why they are choosing those payment systems. The education and and all that space will be something that it's beyond my my mandate. And what will you do with the results of this survey? So actually, this. Survey, it's published in our website, which is on payments.ca, uh, where it's accessible for the entire public to look at, to have a better understanding. So the research that we do at Payments Canada, it's purely education, so that we understand how Canadians' consumer businesses make payments. We understand what they want so that we can always foster innovation and better understand their needs. Did anything stand out for you in terms of information from the survey about Ontarians? Um, yes, yeah, so staying on the contactless topic, uh, we see Ontarians and actually mainly younger Ontarians tapping their card or phone the most. And interestingly, BC, BC is also high, uh, high users. So we can say we are both leaders in this space. Um, so we're really here uh, looking at this, not only for Ontario, for the entire country, we're working to provide a platform that allows those in the payments ecosystem to innovate and provide Canadians with convenient, safe, and efficient payments options. And how do we compare as a nation to other uh, nations in terms of not using cash and using other channels and other methods of payment? So this report looks specifically in Canada, but we know from other research that you can find on our website, payments.ca, uh, that Canada is one of the leaders that is in the contactless uh, payments um, and also in part of the modernizing uh, the journey. But we will have more information on the website. Now, would banks be interested in this survey? Would retailers be interested in this survey? I think yes. I think everyone that has um, a touch point in payments will be interested in the survey because we are, Payments Canada, looking at how consumers and businesses are currently behaving and wants to behave in the future. So if you have an interest in understanding those behavior, this report will be interesting for you. Now, I have a quirky question for you before we say goodbye. If you were to look in your wallet, do you have any cash in it right now? I actually have three currencies. That's because I travel a lot. But technically, I have more foreign currency than Canadian currencies. <laughs> I'm really, I'm a really electronic person. Oh well, you are part of the survey. You're you're part of that seventy three percent. Exactly. Cyril <laughs> Chiron, head of research and strategic foresight, Payments Canada. Thank you so much for exploring and explaining. No worries. Thank you so much for having me in. Well, time flies. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or a community event to share, head to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for being with us and happy Hanukkah.